Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Pay Up. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 4th, 2016. In class one day, when I taught at Moscow State University back in 1995, my student, Irina, described meeting an American missionary on the subway. The missionary had advised her that to become a Christian, all she needed to do was to acknowledge four simple propositions in a little booklet, then say a short prayer. It was that easy. Would she like to pray and become a Christian right then and right there? I still remember Irina's response 20 years later. You Americans make being a Christian so simple and easy. But for us Russians in the Orthodox tradition, it's much more difficult. Irina was channeling the Jesus of this week's Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Jesus bluntly warns us to count the cost of following him. Whereas we like to comfort ourselves with the hope of heavenly rewards, he reminds us of the earthly risks. He, tell those, he tells those who focus on the benefits and blessings not to forget the costs and the constraints. In perhaps the most uncompromising declaration that he ever made, he repeats himself three times, and versions of this saying occur five times in the Gospels. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I don't think that Jesus means that we should treat our families with antipathy or aversion. Family, like many other aspects of life, is not only a legitimate concern, but often the source of great love and joy. Rather, Jesus uses hyperbole to express a literal truth. Authentic discipleship demands intentional renunciation. Even good things can distract us. Jesus' call to an absolute and unconditional allegiance relativizes every other legitimate claim. Renunciation as a condition of discipleship is a prominent theme in Luke. In the parable right before his hard saying, Jesus compared God's kingdom to a great banquet. But when guests received their invitations, they all alike began to make excuses about wealth, work, and family that prevented them from attending. When an overzealous follower insisted that he would follow Jesus wherever he went, Jesus told him that he had no idea what he was promising, for he himself was a homeless wanderer. He discouraged yet another disciple from attending his father's funeral, and even a request for final farewells earned a rebuke. The disciples, who failed so badly in so many ways, could at least tell Jesus with a straight face, Lord, we have left all we had to follow you. When Jesus called Andrew, Peter, James, and John, Luke emphasizes their categorical and immediate break with the family business. We read, 
they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. When Jesus visited Matthew at his tax office and said to him, follow me, Luke writes that Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. Luke describes how large crowds traveled with Jesus. It's easy to imagine why, given the spectacle he made. Jesus could be irreverent. He ate and drank with the riffraff. He violated accepted ideas about institutional religion, befriended the ritually impure, broke social taboos by honoring women, eating with despised Roman tax collectors, and embracing prostitutes. He mocked the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of the religiously scrupulous. He silenced the religious experts. He satirized Rome's political power and proclaimed new world order characterized by God's bias for the weak and the vulnerable. But Jesus raised the bar for the casual enthusiasts. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You can bet that thinned the large crowds. By his own estimate, only a few people would stoop to enter the narrow door and find the winding road. We shouldn't judge these people too harshly. Everyone has responsibilities and legitimate concerns. In fact, the Gospels are realistic in describing how many people rejected Jesus' invitation to his subversive way of life. Many people who heard him teach and saw him heal considered his call, calculated the cost, and refused the invitation. For example, after a particularly scandalous teaching, we read many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In a Samaritan village, the people there did not welcome him. After healing a man, all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. In his hometown of Nazareth, people took offense at him. Luke adds that all the people in the synagogue were furious. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. When Jesus asked a young entrepreneur to renounce his riches, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And the religious establishment plotted to kill him. There's an emergent tension in Jesus' own life between his filial identity with God the Father and his willing obedience to his earthly parents. That obedience eventually gave way to a radical rupture. By the time of his public ministry, his family tried to apprehend him as a deranged crackpot. In his first miracle at Cana, Jesus dis distanced himself from his own mother. When his mother and brothers tried to speak to him, he rebuffed them and redefined the meaning of family. Some disciples said Jesus would even renounce not only family, but marriage and sex. In the Old Testament reading this week, Jeremiah renounced the idolatrous myths of nation and state. His long prophecy deconstructs every aspect of society that a citizen might cherish, the government, foreign and domestic policy, religion, 
the judiciary, business, and the military. The stout cultural status quo offered soothing words of assurance, says Jeremiah. You will have peace. No harm will come to you. But Jeremiah unmasked what he called reckless lies and offered Yahweh's alternative analysis. I'm preparing disaster for you. For renouncing national myths, Jeremiah was beaten, threatened with death, imprisoned, thrown down a well, and derided as an unpatriotic crank and traitor. Few people listened to him, but in the end, history proved him right. In this week's epistle, Paul challenged Philemon to renounce the status quo of wealth and work. When he was in prison, Paul had befriended and converted a runaway slave from Colossae named Onesimus. When he sent a letter back to the Colossian church, he shocked them by also sending Onesimus back with his courier Tychicus. Paul praised Onesimus as our faithful and dear brother, who was one of you. To the slave owner, Philemon, who worshiped in the same Colossian church, Paul made a pun on Onesimus' name, which in Greek means useful. True, said Paul, Onesimus was a runaway slave who ended up in prison. But now in Christ, he was Paul's son and very hard. True, he used to be useless to Philemon. But as a new convert, he was now useful to both Paul and Philemon. Philemon would get Onesimus back, said Paul, but it ought to be no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. And so, with his gentle irony, Paul challenged Philemon to renounce the, the status quo of slavery. Renouncing family, idolatry of the nation, work, and wealth are indicative of a broader call to multiple conversions. Renunciation is a lifelong process in which the goalposts keep moving. We're never finished. When Jesus first called Peter at the Sea of Galilee with the words, follow me, he renounced his life as a fisherman. Three years later, at that same seashore, and after he had denied even knowing him, Jesus again called Peter with those identical words, follow me. And so Peter renounced the stigma of failure. Later still, Peter renounced his bigotry when he realized that God welcomed Gentiles and people of every nation without favoritism. And finally, Peter renounced his own hypocrisy when Paul confronted him for refusing to eat with Gentiles after he had said he would. Renunciation accentuates the conflicting and competing interests between the call of God's kingdom and the voices of family, work, wealth, patriotism, bigotry, and even failure. The hard saying of Jesus validates Irina's observation that the way of Jesus is complex and difficult. It's not simple and easy. In an odd sort of way, his strident demand comforts us because it affirms our struggle for vigilance. 
Renunciation offers the ultimate risk-ward decision, said Jesus. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we give up all, we gain all. And so I've taken to praying with St. Augustine, Lord, give what you command and command what you will. For book reviews this week, we have a guest book review by the novelist Ron Hansen. The author of the book is Bernard McGinn, and the title, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia, a biography. This book is in the Lives of Great Religious Books, Princeton University Press, 2014. This book is 260 pages long. The Latin Summa Theologia can be translated as the whole, total, summary, marrow, or climax of theology. And all of those nouns seem fitting for the work of genius so lucidly described by Professor Bernard McGinn of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. Written in Paris and Rome by the Dominican friar Thomas Aquinas, the Summa, says McGinn, is a massive work containing over a million and a half words, divided into three large parts containing 512 topics and no fewer than 2,668 articles dealing with particular issues. Like many medieval theologians, Aquinas was deeply influenced by Aristotle and used his method of questioning to introduce seminarians and theology students to the Christian faith and to offer helps in defending that faith from hostile attacks. He did not confine his discussions to biblical sources, however, but incorporated the philosophy of Hebrews, Muslims, and pagans, citing such thinkers as Anselm, Augustine, El-Ghazali, Boethius, Cicero, Dionysius the Areopagite, Maimonides, and Plato. Aquinas's photographic memory enabling him to recall word by word virtually everything he'd ever read. McGinn describes a humble, corpulent, taciturn Italian friar who, even while holding a chair in theology and carrying out the duties of a Dominican priest, employed two secretaries in order to dictate his thoughts in Latin at a rate of more than 12 pages a day. In his seven years composing his instructional guide, he filled in an in an English translation, 2,565 double-column pages. And then something happened, perhaps a stroke or even a beatific vision. For in December 1273, Aquinas ended his writing career, and he died just three months later. His amanuensis and minder noted that Friar Thomas was even more abstracted than ever, and asked why he was no longer writing. Thomas replied, Reginald, I cannot, because all I have written seems like straw to me.
Professor McGinn offers a learned, concise, very accessible tour through the Summa Theologia, notes its importance to the Christendom of the Middle Ages, its disparagement during the Enlightenment and flourishing later, and its relevance even in the post-Vatican II Catholic Church. His biography of Aquinas' multi-volume work, like all great teaching, is fascinating, entertaining, and rich with insight. I have no doubt that I'll be returning to it time and again. Once again, the author of the book, Bernard McGinn. The title, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia, a biography. A guest review by the novelist Ron Hansen. For movies this week, I review a title called Gunned Down, The Power of the NRA, from the year 2015. I watched this one-hour PBS Frontline documentary one day after the worst mass shooting in American history, the slaughter of 50 people at a gay nightclub in Orlando in June of 2016. By now, the list of American gun tragedies is long. The subsequent narrative is predictable, and the results always the same. This film focuses on the aftermath of three events. Gabby Gifford, who, by the way, was formerly pro-gun, Columbine, and then Sandy Hook. And then the failure of, of federal legislative efforts in 1999 and 2013, despite the public outcry to do something. Our presidents, our Congress, and especially the NRA and its head, Wayne LaPierre, make for easy targets and surely bear blame and shame for fostering gun violence. By many accounts, the NRA is the best equipped and most feared lobby in all of Washington. They insist the issue is not guns, but freedom. After Sandy Hook, they even argued for more guns in the hands of so-called good people in order to fight the bad people. None of the NRA leadership would agree to be interviewed for this film. Time after time, public outrage has lost the fight with political realities. But after watching this movie, which one NRA advocate described as fair-minded, I wondered about our need for scapegoats and about what the historian Gary Wills calls the signs of our deeply degraded culture that has become so violent in so many ways. I watched this film from the Frontline website. Once again, the name of the movie, Gun Down, The Power of the NRA, a PBS Frontline documentary. And finally, for poetry, we posted a poem by the Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan. It's actually a Lenten prayer, but I like it at any time of year. It's called Suburban Prayer. Grant us for grace oppositions, stymings, sand in our pet gears, a bubble in the cozy blood. 
Crowd our real estate with the ragtag reel, the world. Marry us off, lonely girls to Harlem in Asia. This Lent, celebrate in the haunted house, the world. Suburban Prayer by Daniel Berrigan. It's from his book called And the Risen Bread, Selected Poems from 1957 to 1997. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 4th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.